We're excited to be back. Uh, we uh, have uh, we missed you guys, and we had a lot of fun with our grandkids and all of that. But uh, we are happy to be unpacked for one thing, and uh, and staying in one place. But especially happy to be here, and it's a pleasure to get to talk with you today. Um, I want to start with just a question, and uh, you don't have to answer out loud, but but be honest, at least with yourself. Have you ever been in a fight with God? Now, don't lie, all right? Have you been in a fight with God? Well, of course you have. We all have. In fact, we tend, our tendency is to fight with God every step of the way. When he calls us to faith, we have a battle of wills. Sometimes people think it's an intellectual battle, but I think the intellectual battle can be won long before the battle of will. Am I willing to allow acknowledge that God has some claim on my life. When he calls us to holiness, we have a battle of affections because we just love our sin. We love our selfishness, our self-centeredness and the pursuits that we have in our lives. When he calls us to mission, then we have a battle of vision because we want to hang on to our comforts. We want to hang on to our comfort zone. We want to hang on to our vision, our ideas of what our life might be like. We have a battle with God. And when God doesn't do what we think he should do, when he doesn't act in the way we think he should act, then we have a battle of sovereignty. You know, that we, we want to impose our standards, our understanding of what's right, our, our ideas about what we deserve above his ideas and his plans and his purposes. So, yeah, we find ourselves in battles with God. As a matter of fact, what God wants is all of our hearts, and we, we tend not to give up any new territory in our hearts without a fight. So, here's an uncomfortable question. How do you win? How do you win a fight with God? I want to look at kind of an uncomfortable passage today that maybe might help us to, uh, to explore that a little bit. It's in Joshua chapter 2. Now, this is a, this is a passage, you, you know what's, what's going on here. We're looking at the conquest of the promised land. They're, they're just on the cusp of entering into the promised land. They've wandered in the wilderness. Now Joshua's a leader. God has told him, be strong and courageous. You're going to lead my people in and possess the promised land. But I want to look at this conquest today in this chapter. We see it less through the eyes of the Hebrew conquerors and more through the eyes of the Canaanites who are about to be conquered. They see this mass of humanity just across the river gathering there. there and they, they've heard the stories. They know what they've done on the other side of the Jordan River as they've conquered the kings over there. They know that they're taking no prisoners. They've heard the story of how God brought Egypt to its knees and delivered them out of bondage in Egypt and destroyed the, the whole Egyptian army. They've heard all of this kind of stuff. The main thing they realize is that this is a people who has a God who's not limited to a particular place. He is God everywhere and he is with them and they seem to be, be un, undefeatable and here they are, and the people of Jericho in particular are looking across the river and seeing they 
are next. They are in a fight with God. How do you respond? How would they respond? How do you win a fight like that? Well, I think in, in all of Canaan, at least in all of Jericho, there was apparently just one person who really understood the situation well. And this is her story today. I just want to read the whole chapter, and I'm reading from the uh, CSV this morning. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Akachia Grove, saying, Go out and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. Then the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab and said, Bring out the men who came to you and enter your house, for they have come to investigate the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, yes, the men did come to me, but I, don't, I didn't know where they, where they were from. At nightfall, when the city gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. The men pursued them along the road to the fords of Jordan, and as soon as they left to pursue them, the city gate was shut. Therefore, the men, before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I, to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is a God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. The men answered her, We will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness to you, to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then she let them down by a rope through the window since she lived in a house that was built into the wall of the city. So go to the hill country, so that the men pursuing you won't find you, she said to, to them. Hide there for three days until they return. Afterward, go on your way. The men said to her, We will be free from this oath you made us swear, unless when we enter the land you tie this scarlet cord to the window through which you let us down. Bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's family into your house. If anyone goes out the doors of your house, his death will be on his, his own fault, and we will be innocent. If, any, if anyone in your house should be harmed, his, or excuse me, but, and, and we will be innocent. But if anyone in your, in your house should be harmed, his death will be our fault. And if you report our mission, we're free from the oath that you made us swear. Let it be as you say, she replied, and she sent them away. And after they had gone, she tied the scarlet cord to the window. 
Now, this, this passage is fraught with moral ambiguities for us. Uh, first of all, it's just the background of, of holy war that's going on here. The, 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 the Hebrew term cherem, that's the, 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 the rule that they, that they had in, in, that God had given them, that everything and everybody was to be destroyed. They were not to leave a single human being or animal in Canaan breathing when the battle was done. They were to destroy everybody. That's, a, that's a, something we struggle with a little bit sometimes. Another is just the fact that we're talking about a prostitute. The heroine of this story is a prostitute. And then the fact that her heroic deed is to lie to some government officials. You know, that's, that, that makes us a little uncomfortable. But I think maybe the hardest question for me is what is this story even doing here anyway? I mean, here we are on the cusp of the conquest. They've been commanded to destroy every living thing in the, in, in, uh, in the land that they're about to conquer. And suddenly, just as they're about to cross the river, the action stops, and we have this story of a Canaanite who gets spared. Why, why is that? Well, let's, let's kind of talk through those things. First of all, the idea of the, the holy war, the ban that was that uh, they were to practice as they went in. The reasoning behind that, you know, the Canaanites had been there for a long time. Their ancestors knew Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. They had been there for a long They had had plenty of opportunity to know who God was. They had witnessed that. And they had also heard through the last 40 years of what God had done in delivering them out of Egypt. And they knew that they were coming in their direction. And yet, through all of that, they had persisted in being the people that they were, which was a very corrupt, a very violent, a vile kind of people, a, a, an immoral kind of people. And at the very center of all of that was a, a religion that was, that was centered around fertility rights and things that, that included all of that, uh, lewd kinds of sexual acts in the temple, as well as human sacrifice and all of these things. These, these were people who had persisted, even in the face of all of all the, the judgment that they were about to experience, they had persisted in their rebellion and their corruption and their, and their, uh, uh, their wickedness before God. And God was about to give this land to a people who was going to live in covenant with him, and he wanted to erase every trace of that corruption from the land that they were going to inhabit. So then we have Rahab, who is, who is a particular Canaanite. In some ways, I think she's the quintessential Canaanite. She was a prostitute. There's really no, no getting around this. Sometimes you'll, people will say, well, she was mainly just an innkeeper. No, she was she was actually, she was a prostitute, and she wasn't like a fancy temple prostitute. She was just a, a prostitute who had her house on the edges of the city and, uh, and maybe might have been a little bit on the fringe, but at the same time, she was, she was the very essence of the corruption of the culture and the society that she lived in. And they're all, as you read through and as you look at commentaries and things, they're, 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 there's 
aspects of the language here that might have some sort of overtones and innuendos that kind of confirm that. But nevertheless, this is who she was. She was, she was, a, she was not a righteous woman on the fringes of a corrupt society. She was the epitome of the degradation and the corruption that existed there. And she was the polar opposite of everything that Israel as God's chosen people, stood for. And that's what makes what happens all the more extraordinary. So what happens? Joshua sends in two spies. Just like Moses had done. Moses sent 12. Maybe Joshua thought the results would be better with just two. I don't know, that's speculation. But, but he sent two in to look, look things over and see how things were. It seems like, you know, it, in, in a lot of ways in these early chapters, uh, a lot of the purpose is to just show that Joshua is, is a, the right successor for Moses. And so we see him doing a lot of the same things that Moses did. And he sent in these two spies and they somehow they end up, they land in the house of Rahab. And it's innocent enough and, and it seems like they, the text goes to a lot of care to make sure they, they weren't there for illicit reasons. This was actually just a good place for them to to be spies. It was kind of, you know, you've seen those spy movies or like that scene in Star Wars where, you know, you go to this sort of shady place, you're sort of anonymous, nobody sees you, nobody pays attention to who's there, and you're able to gather information. It was a, it was a logical place for a couple of spies to go, and they snuck into the city, but the city was on high alert. There was no avoiding it. They saw the they saw the Hebrew people out there. They, they were watching the river. They were watching people coming and going. And there was just no sneaking in without somebody knowing. And no sooner had they arrived than someone was standing before the king saying, These, there, there are two men who snuck into the city who from the Hebrews, and they're here to scout things out. And so they go to Rahab's house. Apparently they knew exactly where they had gone. And they come to Rahab, and, and Rahab hastily hides the men, and she comes to the door, and uh, they, they ask her where these men are, and she says, now, you know, she, she's, a, she's an actress, right? I mean, I don't want to equate prostitutes and the, act, the actors, but, you know, she had some skills in convincing people of what, uh, of what was not necessarily true, and she said, Oh, no, yeah, there were a couple of guys here. I had no idea where they came from, but they left. They, they just went out the city gate. Hurry, you might be able to catch them before the gate closes. And so without even considering whether they should look through her house, they head out and shoot out the gate. The gate closes, and so they're safe for the night because they can't get back in, even if they wanted to, but they don't want to because they're out on this wild goose chase beating around the bushes down by the river, trying to find these two spies. She's taken care of them. And then she goes up to, uh, to the roof where she's hid these guys under these, uh, this fl the, the flax, some, some, some kind of grain that she has up there, these long, long stems that she has up on her roof. She's hidden them there. And up to this point, everything that she's done, you could consider, you could attribute to just good old Middle Eastern hospitality. Somebody shows up at your place, you have to take care of them, even if they're an enemy, they're under your protection. And maybe, 
maybe you could construe it that way, but, but what happens next is the most extraordinary thing that, that really leaves no doubt whatsoever. In, in verse 8, let's look at that again. She says, I know. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. Just, just that, those little words, I know, those are words that, that's a formula that's used in a lot of different places, in other places in the Old Testament for a Gentile to express faith in the God of Israel. It, it shows up when Jethro had uh, uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, after Moses leads the people out of Israel, and Jethro comes to him and says, I know that, that God, Yahweh, is greater than all of the other gods because of what he did to the gods of Egypt. And then it shows up again in, uh, in Kings, uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 with the, uh, the widow of Zarephath who says to, she says to the prophet, she says, I know that you are a man of God and that God's word is true. It shows up again in 2 Kings chapter 5 with Naaman, the, the, the Syrian commander, after he's been cleansed of leprosy. He says, I know there is no God anywhere other than the God of Israel. And so as she begins, she is, she is speaking in a way that shows that she has come to a conviction about who the God of Israel. She says, the Lord has given you the land. Not only does she have faith, she has some understanding. She's using actually the very words that the Israelites would use about what God was about to do. The promise that she knew the promise that God had given to them. That he was going to give them this land. And then she says, and we know what happened. I know what happened at the Red Sea. This is the only case of a Gentile actually referring to that event in the, at the Red Sea. She was... She was very much aware of what God had done to deliver them. And she said, and I know that, that uh, you, you are devoting us to destruction. She's actually using the Hebrew word there for, that, for the ban. It's a word that's unique to Israel in the way that they talked about it. He, she said, I know that you're coming to destroy everything and everybody. I know all of these things. But then the next thing is what is really remarkable. She says, the Lord, your God, he is, he is God in the heavens and on the earth below. This phrase also shows up on three other occasions in the Old Testament. And it's always in the context of a profession of faith of one of Israel's leaders. Moses says it in Deuteronomy 4. Solomon says this in 1 Kings chapter 8. Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. They have this phrase, the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and the earth below. Now what's remarkable about this is that here is the quintessential Canaanite who is giving the quintessential Israelite confession of faith about who God is. No Israelite, no Hebrew could have said it better than she did. She is professing her faith, her understanding of who God really is. And so she says, 
She asked the spies, would you spare me and my family? I've been kind to you. Would you spare us? Because I know that you're coming to destroy everything. And they say, we'll lay down our life for yours. We, because you've been good to us we, and you've spared us and you've protected us, we will do what you're asking us to do. So she lets them down by a rope because conveniently she has a house on the wall. They can't get out the gate at night, but she can let them down over the wall. And as she does, they have these final instructions. She says, now, I sent the, sent the men down to the river. You go the other way. You go up to the hills, and you stay there for three days. And once they've come back in, then you'll be free to go, and you can go along protected. And they, they looked at her and said, you don't break your promise. Okay? If you tell anybody what's going on here, then, then we won't be bound by the promise that we've made to you. He says, and they says, so, so tie a scarlet thread, a scarlet cord on your window, and we'll know that that's your house, and, and anybody in that house, any of your family who's in that house at that time will be spared when we come and take the city. You know, that scarlet cord's been interpreted a lot of different ways, or has, there's, in the Old Testament, often the term scarlet uh, is the, uh, has sinful kind of connotations. Like when Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash them as white as snow. As snow. Some scholars think that a scarlet cord may have actually even been a sign of, of a prostitute's house. You know, they didn't have electric lights, so they can have a red light district, so they had a scarlet thread district. You know, I don't know if that's the case or not, but for, at any rate, this, this cord, whatever, whatever it represented before, now represents it's the sign of her salvation and her deliverance. So why is this story here? Why is it here? Why pause and make this and tell this story at this point in Israel's conquest of the land. Uh, is it just to tell us that Joshua sent spies and they made it out alive? No. We don't even know the spies' names. We don't know the king's name. We don't know the names of the men who came and went from her house. We just have two names in this chapter. One is Joshua and one is Rahab. This is a story about Rahab. So is it to portray Rahab as kind of a counterpart to Joshua? They are parallel in several ways. She believed and feared God. Joshua believed and feared God. She took a risk and made a stand like Joshua, being strong and courageous. She became an instrument of salvation for her family, for her people, and Joshua was, was certainly that for God's people. That's a little better. That's, that's interesting, but it still doesn't really answer the question, why is this story of a scared Canaanite prostitute sitting here right on the cusp of the conquest of the land when they're supposed to, to wipe everything out, this story of one who would be spared? You know, we have a graduate named Emily who's down at um, Fuller Seminary writing her dissertation right now on all the ways this passage has been interpreted in history. It's actually a church history kind of dissertation from and beyond, like Hebrew is Jewish interpretation all the way through now. And, and there have been a lot of 
things said about this. There's been a lot of different angles taken on this. But I think to understand why this is here, we, kinda, we need to go back to the first promise that God gave to Israel, that he gave to Abraham. You remember in Genesis chapter 12 when he said, said I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And you will be a blessing. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families? Would that mean even Canaanite families? Now, I think that, that this story here is, is here to remind Israel. God is reminding Israel, as he does several places through the Old Testament, that he, he doesn't bless them just so that they can be blessed. He's blessing them because he wants to bless all of the families of the earth through them. And, and that even includes these vile, corrupt, immoral, violent Canaanites if they're willing to meet the one condition. And what condition is that? Well, I think that brings us back to the, the question we started with. How do you win a fight with God? And these Canaanites, they were all in a fight with God. They were afraid. They were scared to death. They were overwhelmed with dread. She said they were panicking. Their hearts had melted, other translations say. But there was only one Canaanite who was willing to take the step that was absolutely essential to win. And she was nothing special. Just a prostitute, a sex worker living on, on, in the wall of an incredibly corrupt city. And her name was Rahab. And she knew what it takes to win a fight with God. All you have to do is give up. Surrender. Being conquered is a victory when the conqueror is God, and your response to him is surrender. Surrender is victory? Really? Well, that seems sort of counterintuitive, but let's see how it worked out for Rahab. In Joshua chapter 6, we find what happens after the wall has fallen down, and in verse 22 it says, Joshua said to the two men who had scouted the land, go to the prostitute's house and bring, out, bring the woman out of there, and all who are with her, just as you swore to her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. And they brought her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and bronze, articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's family, and all who belonged to her because she hid the messengers Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she still lives in Israel today. Isn't that interesting? That when this, when this story was finally written down by, maybe by Joshua himself, they made a point of saying, she's still living among us today. What does that say? That says that, Rahab found a home among the Israelites. She became integrated into the community and to the life of Israel. She, she even might have become a, a prominent kind of 
citizen of Israel. She was someone who was well known among them. She still lives among us today. And, and what happened to her? Well, she married a, an Israelite by the name of Salmon. And, she, and they had a son whose name was Boaz. And Boaz married another Gentile woman, a Moabitess by the name of Ruth. And Ruth and, and Boaz had a son named Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had five sons. The first four, you don't remember their names. I actually have to read them. Eliab, Shemaiah, Abinadab, and Nethanel. And then the fifth one, the youngest one, David, who became Israel's greatest king. Not only was Rahab's life spared, and not only did she gain a new identity among God's people, she became the great-great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king. And when a young descendant of David by the name of Mary gave birth to the Son of God, one of his disciples started his account of Jesus' life by tracing Jesus' ancestry, his genealogy, back to Abraham who had, made, who had received that original promise. And in that, in that genealogy, there were four women, three of whom were Gentiles who were a part of God's people, not because they were born there, but because they were adopted. And the second person on that list was Rahab. So why was surrender victory for Rahab? Well, it was because not just because she was spared the destruction that the other Canaanites experienced. And it wasn't just because she was able to live, to live a long, fruitful life as a wife and mother among the community of Israel. But most importantly, surrender was victory for her because when God was the conqueror and her response was surrender, she had the privilege of becoming a part of God's grand story of what he was doing in the world. She not only became a beneficiary of the promise of God, she got to become a participant in the promise of God and what he was bringing about in the, wor in the world. She became the person that she was created to be. So what's your fight with God today? Is, it, is he calling you to faith, to trust him in some way, and you're having a battle of, of the will? You need to acknowledge that he has the authority to command your life. Is he calling you to holiness, and you're having a, a battle of affection, and there's something you need to die to in your, in your heart? Is he calling you to mission? And you're having a battle of vision. Maybe the, the thing that you sense he's calling you to is really not what you had in mind. And you're in a battle with him over that. You're clinging to your vision for your life. Or maybe it's one of those battles of sovereignty because... God isn't doing what you think he should be doing and you're just angry with him and you're struggling with 
with accepting the fact that, that his ways are actually higher and better than your ways. Whatever your battle, there's only one way to win. And that is to surrender. Surrender means victory because when you yield your will to his, when you yield your life to him, he works his new creation in you. And you become all you were meant to be. And you become a part of what he's doing in the world. And that's, that's the greatest victory and joy of them all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your purposes for our lives are always higher than ours. And uh, we thank you that, that the greatest joys of our lives come when we let go of whatever we're clinging to and allow you to fulfill your purpose in us. And Lord, we pray that as a school, as a community, as individuals following after you, that you would give us the daily victory of surrender and of giving our lives to you for what you want to do in us. We thank you in Jesus' name.